Go to 1 John 3. We're going to read a few of these verses. Now, let me give you just a little bit of background on uh, the little book of 1 John, the letter of 1 John. Um, there are five books in the New Testament that we attribute to the Apostle John. He was one of those original 12 disciples. Um, he was the brother of James, who was the first of the martyred apostles that you read about early on in the book of Acts. Um, he was one of the sons of thunder, uh, and, and James, his brother, was the other, James and John, uh, the sons of Zebedee. Now, he was, um, this is not a commercial, it's just a curiosity. Are you watching the AD thing on Sunday nights? I'm kind of enjoying that so far. And it's reminding me that John also was the first of the disciples, of the apostles at least, uh, to visit the empty tomb. Uh, he was the one that outran Peter, you remember? And, and, uh, and uh, so um, um, it got several distinctions in that. Um, church history really associates John with the church in Ephesus. Um, I, I, I've always found it intriguing to think about it. And this may be only a, a romantic thought, but I think it's sanctified romanticism if so, uh, to think about while Paul was writing to Timothy, uh, who was kind of the leader of the Ephesian church, the church at Ephesus, can you imagine occasionally an old man would totter in the back door and sit down wherever they were in their meetings? And uh, can you imagine Timothy as the pastor teaching something about Jesus and turning to this little old man and saying, John, tell us how it really was. Tell us what he really said. Because we believe he was kind of a part of that. An elder in the church uh, in, in Ephesus. He, w he lived there uh, until the AD, the AD 80s or 90s. He would have probably been an elderly man at that time. He's the only one that we know of that died of uh, really of old age rather than uh, to be martyred uh, of, the tw of the original 12. Um. His, his, uh, the dignity of that age kind of peeks through occasionally as he will call his readers his little children numerous times. You can read that in, in these books. Now, these letters uh, of the five books that he wrote, he wrote the Gospel of John and wrote the book of Revelation and then wrote these three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd uh, John. We're going to look at, at chapter 3 today. Um, now, John's going to address several problems in this Ephesian church uh, for these original readers. Uh, these problems include a denial, a, some that would deny Jesus' bodily existence. Uh, uh, you can read about that, Ellie. The group that you were referring to me uh, this morning is another one that, that would say, well, Jesus really wasn't here in the flesh. Um, uh, a denial of sin in the lives of some and a general lack of love for one another. There were false teachers around that area that were so bold that John referred to them as having the spirit of the Antichrist. He's going to call that in 1 John 4. Now, John, I believe, had the perfect combination. And this is a hard combination to come by. We're going to deal with it a little bit this week, um, today. John had this perfect combination of watchfulness. He was concerned about truth and what was being taught, all that kind of thing. Watchfulness, yet love. Okay? Now, my question that I, that I kind of began your outline with this this morning is I, I think most of us have a tendency to lean one way or the other. 
We tend to be kind of, um, kind of guardians of the faith or very loving. And it's kind of hard to kind of strike a middle ground there. Uh, often those who are guardians of the faith aren't very loving. And often some of us who are filled with, with that attitude of love kind of are, are a little bit too laissez-faire on the other end of things. John had this perfect combination of it. Now, I've got to ask you a question. Estella, I think, even agreed with me about this last week, that reading the little book of 1 John is a great way to, to receive assurance of your salvation. You're going to read a lot of things about this is how we know. Did anybody kind of take me up on that challenge? And, and uh, let's see, what, how, what was the, uh, the, the um, question I wrote in my notes is, did you find assurance as you read this little book? Anybody? Anybody take me up on that? I, I often, um, if I've led somebody to Christ recently, um, someone who's accepted Christ recently, I will encourage them um, because the devil's going to come along after this decision and convince you that nothing happened. I, uh, often I will say, it'll just, it's just two or three pages. Read the little book of 1 John. It'll be great assurance for you for what you've just decided to do, this new walk in Christ. Well, I hope it's kind of been at least some of that to you. Now, I want us to begin with verse 11 in chapter 3 of 1 John. Now, I will, I will warn you, and I'll have to correct my outline a couple of times. There were a few times when I'm thinking about John, and I just put the reference um, it, when it really needed to be John, whatever, rather than First John. Anyway, so I'll, I'll try to kind of clear that up as we go through. Bob, you're back there. If you've got it in front of you, would you please read 11 down to 18? Can you understand why often John is called the disciple of love? He's that word you're going to hear a lot. I, I read a, a, a story this week, or just kind of an illustration idea about, um, and I've forgotten the guy's name who did that original uh, sculpture. That's the four letters L O V E, and the O is kind of leaned over. Anybody know the name of that sculptor? Uh, anyway. Is it, it's in New York, I think, isn't it, Katie? Well, but you see it a lot, or you'll see it kind of depicted um, um, in, in some ways. And I get to thinking, you know, love is a lot more than a sculpture in a park somewhere. That reminds us of some things. But it's a lot more than sculpture in a park. And, and so um, John's going to help us deal with this. Now, where did John first hear this message? It didn't originate with him. 
okay? And by no means did this message originate with him. Would somebody go to John, the Gospel of John, 1334? There's one of those places where I forgot to put the John on there, okay? John 1334, somebody do that? We've we got to give this one to John, Steve. Would you go to Matthew 27 and read 33, uh, sorry, Matthew 22 and read 37 through 40? Um, okay, now, where did John hear this message of love first? Uh, you know, the, uh, this is the middle square on the bingo card, okay? This, it's appropriate to say Jesus right here. All right, um, listen to what he says, John 13, 34, John. Now, the Apostle John is going to expand on this. But he heard it first from Jesus. Listen to where he, what he talks about in, in Matthew 22. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets Jesus says, ask what's the greatest commandment. He goes, in his mind like that, he goes all through the Old Testament. It's, he's better than any word search app on your phone and brings up the two most important things said in the Old Testament. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. By the way, those aren't found in the same place. One's in, one's in Deuteronomy, one's in Leviticus. So, He's pulled all of the law and sums it up as the greatest commandment. But John was taught this by Jesus. It's also our challenge. So not only do we have the gospel record here, but we've got John's teaching in 1 John to help us kind of flesh it out. Um, another thing you may want to pick up, a, a book that, that really impacted me several years back, probably 20 years ago or so, uh, was a book by Reuben Welch, who was a great Nazarene uh, theologian and preacher. Um, Reuben Welch wrote a book called We Really Do Need Each Other. And it's written in a narrative fashion. Uh, it's a study of 1 John. It's written in narrative fashion. It's actually written so much so that it's almost like you've got the author talking to you, sitting next to you at the table. I'm quite sure it's out of print, but if, if you're the kind of person that can find those kind of things uh, somewhere... That would be a great little hard, it's a small hardback book to have in your library. We once upon a time did, uh, did a whole small group um, uh, semester around that book here at the church years and years ago. We really do need each other. That's what John's kind of helping us say here. And he goes on to say in, ver in verse 12 that there's a danger. He, he invokes um, the, the example of Cain. And he says there is a real danger in failing, actually, to love. Now, there's a stark contrast here. Um, uh, in fact, and I, and I reference for you uh, Matthew 5.21 uh, that we're going to read again in just a minute. So, actually, somebody go there because I want us to read 21 and 22 in a minute. Somebody go to Matthew 5.21. Thank you, Eileen, would you please? Matthew 5, 21. Jesus is going to equate a lack of love, and by the way, in the New Testament, in the Greek, it's called hatred here. He's going to equate a lack of love or an absence of love 
It's kind of like um, the absence of light is black, you know. He's going to equate the absence of love, this idea, with actually murder. Uh, Eileen, would you read just verse 21 and hang on to it because we're going to get to verse 22 in a little bit. All right, go ahead and read 22 now. So Jesus equates, and I, you know, you and I typically think about hatred here, but I want to kind of take that word off the table. I want, I want to take the, the concept here that he's using as a lack of love is equivalent to murder. Okay? Now, when I talked a few moments ago about whether or not you'd land on the side of watchfulness or love, I can't, um, I, I, I can't hesitate to be thinking today about the watchfulness, if you read the original story, what motivated Timothy, McVeigh, motivated Timothy McVeigh to do what he did, was this governmental watchfulness. But what he did had no love in it, and you and I call it murder. He could say, as former military man, I love my country. There was no love in this action. Would you agree with me? Jesus is going to go so far here as to say, and John's going to pick up on the theme. He's going to say, Cain's problem was he didn't have any love. He acted out not of hatred, but of a lack of love. He, he, it, it's subtle, but it's really, really important that you and I catch the difference. And I believe that's uh, what the apostle of love is really kind of telling us here. Okay? Now, verse 13 is interesting, and I want to spend just a minute here because sometimes we get a little bit nervous or get a little bit of heartburn if um, everybody around us and doesn't like us. Sometimes we get a little bit, a lot of heartburn, and you and I, this particular year, have encountered um, uh, dramatic stories like what happened uh, with ISIS on the beach. Uh, those pictures I don't think will ever leave my mind. We've heard it fleshed out and talked about in this very room with our friend Jerry Polycarp. And we wonder why the world doesn't love us as believers. Well, the truth is, we sh uh, John is going to say here, we shouldn't really be concerned if we as Christians are not loved by our culture. It's kind of predicted. Jesus kind of said it. Go with me. Walk with me back left to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. I love the fact that Jesus didn't pull the wool, try to pull the wool over their eyes nor ours. John 15, verse 18 and 19. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Welcome to the club, he says. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. 
But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, uh, I'm sorry, um, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Uh, uh, Jesus goes so far here to say, if, if you really don't, in, in the world in which you live, if, if there's not always just kind of a warm and fuzzy feeling about your relationship with Christ, he said, count it kind of, uh, he wants to let us know, I predicted that. And it's frankly kind of natural because we're going counterculture with the world. Um, um, that's kind of these, these uh, Jesus was going to encounter as would um, John and, and the rest of the disciples and those that they discipled, they're going to encounter the same kind of murders, murderous hatred that Cain showed. And he just frankly says here, don't be amazed by this. Now, where do we see it in our culture? Where there's kind of a hatred, of, don't want to get too political here, but where there's kind of a hatred of the church or a hatred of somebody uh, who claims the name of Christ by the world. And occasionally we're surprised by that. Example? Certainly that's a big one. I mean, it's an obvious one right now, yes. Bob? That's a pretty good apologetic, Bob. That's good. That's good. Uh, Ellie was telling me this morning about someone talking about um, Jesus' marriage to Mary Magdalene and uh, that, that, I mean, and the uh, quote expert doctor whoever who came up with this on the History Channel uh, um, thinks he has is saying something unique. This started in the first. This this whole heresy began in the first century. Come on. Tell me something I didn't already know, partner. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about your buddy. Your History Channel buddy, yeah. <laughs> Larry. Okay, come back with that. I didn't hear you. Yeah. It, it, it's, it kind of surrounds this idea, doesn't it? Now, why, my point is, why are we surprised? Why are we shocked? It's this kind of lack of love that put Jesus on the cross. And I'm going to tell you, it's this dramatic, radical, world-changing love that made all the difference in this world. You take Christianity, you take the love of Jesus away from our society, and it turns completely in on itself, and we're not here anymore. None of us. It is what Jesus will call salt and light, two of Marty's favorite terms, because it's the savor and the saving power of salt and the light that makes a difference. So don't, I don't need to kind of be surprised when I don't fit this culture. Look at verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Now, uh, 
often at a at a memorial service, I will use John five twenty four. Somebody want to go over there to the Gospel of John five twenty four? Cindy, thank you. Because I think it speaks to it uses a similar and by the way the same guy is 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 writing here uh, under the the uh, inspiration of the same Holy Spirit when talking about the difference between life and death. Go ahead and read John five twenty four, Cindy. Thank you. How will the world know that I have crossed over from death into life? According to John here in 1 John 3, they're going to know it by the love that I exhibit or the love that we collectively exhibit for one another. How are we going to know? John says that the one who lives without love remains in death. You've heard it said, that Jesus didn't come to make bad men and women good. He came to make dead men and women alive. And if that's the truth, the way one of these kind of litmus tests, one of these kind of tests how I can know that I pass from death to life, am I really alive, is whether or not I am loving. And I'm going to add to that. The love of Christ exhibited in my life is one of the ways that you're showing in your life that Jesus is alive. You catch that? It's not just the way you're showing that you're alive, that you've passed from death to life, but it's one of the ways that you're showing, uh, and, and certainly this is true in the first century, where, they, where the world around them scratched their heads continually because they were so loving to each other and to them, and, and it made them wonder, is he alive after all? That became the, the kind of most logical conclusion. That because they'd been with him, he claimed to be alive, and they had moved from death to life. Now, we've, we've said, and Eileen read a few minutes ago, about this connection, but, but uh, John here in verse 15 is going to make the same connection that Jesus has made between hatred and murder. You can read about it in John 8, 44. We read about it a minute ago in, in uh, Matthew 5, 21 and 22. It's what motivates then John to, to contrast, I'm sorry, Paul to contrast in Galatians 5. We won't read it now, but you can read it later. Uh, the difference between the fruit of the Spirit and the absence of the Spirit that produces all kinds of kind of putrid things. And he gives us a list of those in Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is, and it begins with what? Wow. In fact, you can almost say, Estelle, I don't think I'm out too much on a limb if I say you could argue that the fruit of the Spirit is love. And those other eight fruit fit within. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all those things fit within this attitude, lifestyle of love. Now, in verse 16, let's read it again. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. What's that talking about? Talking about the cross, right? We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, it's interesting here that, that uh, John is going to say that the polar opposite of taking a life 
And he's already used the, you can put in the parentheses, Cain. That's, that's the story he's invoked a couple of verses ago. All right? The polar opposite of that, of taking a life, is to give, give your life. And that, obviously, that example is Jesus. Now, uh, I've, I've heard this a couple of times. I kind of forgot about it until I was doing this study this week. This is one of those interesting parallels. Most of us somewhere in Bible school or somewhere along the way were um, you know, given a piece of bubble gum to memorize John 3.16. Pretty, pretty famous, uh, popular verse, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I said that in, in typical King James English because I'm sure that's how I read it. Uh, for, for first memorizing, okay? John 3.16 this is what some call the other 316. 1 John 316. You ever heard that? And if you put the two of them together, it forges a pretty good life ethic. Remembering then here that um, uh, as the other great 16, both verses, interestingly, are enumerated 316. Now, that's just a coincidence. Why would I say that? <laughs> Interesting. Well, there were no numbers when they wrote them. That came centuries later. But isn't it interesting? I, I find it an incredible coincidence. Um, John didn't put chapter verse numbers when he wrote either book. But if John 3.16, the gospel John, speaks of the great love of God and giving his precious son so that life may obtain through faith in him, then 1 John 3.16 takes that great example of love and challenges the readers. Now you go do likewise. Emulate this. You catch that? Jesus taught the disciples that the willing sacrifice of my life is the greatest expression of love. You can read about that in John 15.13. Greater love hath no man that he lay down his life for his friends, right? And so John is applying that here 50 years later or so, he's teaching it anew to his readers. Now, here's my question. If the call here in the other 316 is to lay down my life, tell me what that might mean. I want to know. If I'm being called here to lay down my life for others, does that automatically mean martyrdom? Can I answer, you the answer that for you? It doesn't? No. No. It occasionally will. We celebrate those. We grieve for their families. But does laying down my life for you mean I'm going to throw myself in front of a bus? No. What does it mean? I love you in some tangible way. Like, like how? I'm going um, to lay my own personal wishes aside in order to help you. I'm going to give you something back of my life in terms of the most important resources of my life, and that is my time, boy, you know, uh, my ability, my treasure. Bob? You know what you're hitting on here is really important, Bob. Often I will say, if, if you, that those of us within the family of faith, if we really wanted to flesh out 1 John 3.16, I think sometimes it would, it would um, show up in terms of just saying, give one another the benefit of the doubt. Forgive one another. 
don't assume that Joe is a no-good dirty rat because of something I heard he said about me. Okay? I think you've you've said it really well here. Now, it's a bit of a slippery slope because I've got to be careful because I don't want to say, you know what, I really don't like Estella, but I got to love her. Okay? We're talking about actions, not the heart of the person themselves. I've I've dealt recently with a person who has had to confront... Uh, in recent days, the um, the terrible cancer diagnosis of the person who was their abuser as a child. Teresa, you know how hard that could be. Um, have I really forgiven? And I've heard that person say over the last 20 years or so, I've heard that person say, you know what, I don't have to like them, but i got to love them. Now they're in a crucible of saying, how can I even pray for them? This is, this is radical Christianity, folks. This is not just mamby-pamby, um, I love Jesus, Jesus loves me, me and Jesus sitting in a tree Christianity, okay? <laughs> By the way, if somebody wants to put music to that, Joe Jones will sing it, okay? Yep. <laughs> We're talking about what Jesus died to bring about. Forgiveness. Deference to one another over myself, Bob. Yeah, I can't forgive you. Yeah, you're right. In verse 17, he's going to talk about our love expressions must be practical, specific. It's easy for me to say, Lord, bless all uh, the folks in the world who don't have as much as I have. But it's much different for him to say, uh, yeah, but what you probably need to do is show up and help Louise at SeaWorld. Because they're right here. I can do something tangible with that. I'm not saying that worldwide missions is not important. You know I don't mean that. I'm just saying I probably need to get involved in somebody in my backyard, with somebody in my backyard. If I want to be practical with this, Love must be, I believe verse 18 basically is saying love must be more than words. And he's in league or in agreement with James when James says, uh, let your love show by your, let your faith show by your actions over there in James 1.22. Both James and John have, uh, came from this pragmatic region of Galilee where they grew up and where Jesus grew up. And so when they begin to flesh out teaching on how to live the Christian life, it's going to be a practical approach to it. And here John is telling us, love has to be more than words. He's going to say, if we said that an absence of love equals murder, then here love equals helping in some way. Now, I want to read just a couple more verses. Go with me to verse 19. Let's read just a couple more verses here. 
we will know by this that we are the truth and will assure our heart before him. Now, what I got to... What I've got to have you know is that in some of your Bibles, the word this in verse 19 uh, or, or this particular verse kind of begins a new paragraph. Are you, is your Bible beginning a new paragraph right there? Okay, that's a little bit inappropriate, all right? Um, because the problem here is nobody really knows exactly what this is. If this is talking about what John just taught or what he's getting ready to, talk, to teach, uh, in verse 20 and beyond. What I'm going to say to you, it doesn't really matter because it's really applicable to both, the left and the right, both the upper verse 18 and up uh, verse 11 through 18 and what's coming in verse 20 through 24. So don't let that kind of hold you up. But if you're looking at like a 1984 version of the NIV, it'll start a new paragraph there. That's probably not necessary, okay? It continues the same thought, all right? So, but the idea, if you'll catch verse 19, if you don't miss it here, is that, um, at risk, if I don't learn this lesson of love, if I'm reading this right, guys, is assurance of my heart before me or before God. And what I want to equate that to is a sense of inner peace. What's at risk is a sense of peace in the presence of God. The issue here, and I'm going to sound like a huckster and I don't mean to, it just seemed to kind of flow together in verse 20. At issue, if you look at verse 20 and 21, let me, let me read it. In whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. So beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. The issue here, I think sometimes we read this and think that, that John is talking about conscience, but the issue is not one of, the issue is one of confidence not conscience. Why do I say that? Now, there's where I kind of sound like a huckster, right? Confidence, it's kind of a play on words. The issue here is one of confidence, not conscience, because the truth is your conscience sometimes is kind of worthless. I'm not talking about just yours, Jopi. Jopi got really nervous right there. <laughs> but there are times when I can talk myself into doing all kinds of things, if you're like me. And it's like the, the kid that... Uh, when I was the men's resident director at my college, when I was a senior in college, and Ron and I were living in a, in a shabby trailer on the, on the campus of Warner University, and, and the kid came to me who was caught red-handed doing some really stinky things, and he comes to me and says, he was from South Carolina, he said, I know in my heart that I did nothing wrong. You know what? Your heart is stinking. It's worthless if your heart is not telling you the right thing. John is saying here, sometimes your conscience is unreliable. What do I need? Instead, I need heart assurance. And by the way, as we read the rest of this, and we won't get time today, heart assurance is going to come only from the voice of the Holy Spirit at work in you. If he's telling you you're okay, then I guarantee you you're okay. And one of these assurances that I ask you to read about this week as you were reading this little book, one of these assurances is, re, is, is down in about verse 24 or so when it begins to talk about the guarantee that you're really living the truth, the guarantee that you really know the truth, the guarantee that you're really living in, in love is when the Holy Spirit's voice is speaking inside you. And I'm going to tell you that works two different ways. The Holy Spirit often says to me, cut it out, pal. Don't go that way. He, he not only commends me, but he convicts me. 
And I ought to lean into both of those and love both of those and say, okay, I'm just glad you're still speaking to me, Father, because I know that means I'm your child. Here's what St. Augustine said. It's kind of a wonderful, uh, many believe that, that Augustine um, gave us about 85% of, of uh, Christian theology living just a couple of hundred years after Jesus walked the planet. Here's what he's going to say. When all seems lost, God's grace is enough. God does not give a gift inferior to himself. I hope you'll think about that a little bit. Because there are times when I wonder, times when man's inhumanity to man is more than I can stand And I want to think, okay, Lord, when are you going to fix all this? And I ask him that, and his Holy Spirit assures me, you know what? You go on loving people. You go on taking care of people. I'll take care of that one of these days. Joe has written us a poem titled The 168. Many of you may have seen it on on Facebook this week. It's very good. So appropriate for us to close with today. They came from different walks of life, races and ages too, except on that fateful day, they were just like me and you. Each one had a story, how they fit into life's plan. All of them were changed forever by the act of a hate-filled man. Remember, think lack of love. There are more connections than just 168. Much more love has blossomed than bitterness and hate. People ask of God the questions of how and why. Others lived on quietly. Some hung their heads to cry. The cause of this calamity, no one will know for sure, but starting with the faith in God will lead us to the cure. Of the ones that lost their lives on a beautiful spring day, we lift them up to God as they're memorialized today. May the families of all in God choose to live, and may he send his comfort as they continue to forgive. God's going to give you grace for this moment and every moment to follow. And he calls you and I to do our dead level best to hand him an offering when we get to heaven and say, Lord, I have tried to live in love following your Holy Spirit. Bless you. We'll be in chapter three and four, uh, four and five next week, okay?